Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. My biggest criticism was that it wasn't adapted to American culture. Like there wasn't, you know, sort of cultural adaptation of, oh, in American culture, you might be introduced by a friend. You would never meet the parents on a first date. Like that adds a layer of awkwardness that just kind of kills the ability to actually discover each other without that pressure. And especially like it's kind of like you force fit this you know concept onto uh, American culture thinking that it's going to work. And, and to me, that's actually one of the big reasons that like it was a failure in terms of, um, you know, actually having successful matches. And that to me was one of those things that I, I just felt like was a, a horrible oversight. I think the producers did a phenomenal job, to be honest. Like, I, I think that they had, you know, great intentions. They worked really hard. I think that they, um, they did something important. I think that what Smithy did was to start a conversation that we should have had 20 years ago. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. All right, welcome to another scintillating episode of Unmistakable Creative. In case you don't recognize my voice, well, that's a problem. No, no, I'm kidding. That's because I haven't been on the show before. And it is a pleasure for me, Akshob Girdadas. I am a first time person on the show, but here's the catch. I am not the guest. I am going to be hosting. And your regular host, Srini Rao, is going to be my guest. So Srini, thank you so much for allowing the tables to turn. Yeah, well, thanks for volunteering to actually do this. I have only one rule when we start. You're not allowed to ask any questions. The question's all mine. The answer's all yours. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> right. Well, Srini, like, you know, you've been an author. You've written a lot of articles. You've had this great podcast. But your claim to fame in the last, what, six, eight weeks has been a show on Netflix. Talk us through that. It's got to be surreal. It's definitely surreal. And it's a, a little weird because... Um, People have asked, like, the most amusing questions come, like, they're like, oh, if there's a season two, would you do it? And I was like, I think there are much bigger problems to deal with in the world right now than season two of Indian matchmaking. Let's actually solve this pandemic problem first. Um, it's, a, it's a really bizarre thing. And, and, you know, people are like, oh, if there was like an Indian type bachelor thing, would you do it? And I actually said, no, I wouldn't, because the, the truth is, this was sort of a freakish, um, out of nowhere, uh, you know, runaway success nobody expected that it would have this kind of impact like we figured out a few indian people will watch this and that'll be the end of it right and it turns out you know it hit top 10 and on netflix here in the u.s number one in india and so as a result 
I think we've all kind of been um, put into this strange spotlight. Now, the thing that I, uh, you know, it's funny you call a claim to fame. And to me, you know, I'd much rather hope my claim to fame is unmistakable creative in the books that I've written. That, you know, being more of an opportunity to, you know, talk about those things. Um, so that, that's one thing, right? And, and the other thing that happens, and I know this from having been in the spotlight before to some degree from writing books from, you know, having been on, on the Glenn Beck show is that, you know, any elevation in status that you get from something like this is by definition temporary. I, you know, I think I was telling, um, there's this girl who interviewed me for a comedy podcast and I, I told her, I said, you know, like, I think three, four weeks from now, maybe a month from now, nobody's going to give two shits about Indian matchmaking. Um, because the way that we consume media and the way that culture works, we're just infiltrated with so much input. I, I think that the the interesting thing about this is that it happened at a really odd time too, right? Everybody's sitting at home with nothing to do. And so I think that the consumption of this basically had a, a sort of life to it that it wouldn't have had, uh, I think, if we weren't in the situation that we're in. And so that part of it has been really strange and it, it is really surreal. I, I think for, especially if you're somebody who has had a public presence already, but to like have it amplified on this level. Uh, but I tell you what my absolute favorite thing about this has been, it's been getting to reconnect with friends. I haven't talked to in a really long time. Um, like I've had friends from college who contacted me. I've done zoom chats with them. I had a cousin I hadn't talked to since 1993. She and I did a, a you know, video chat, uh, and it was kind of funny cause she was much older than me when, when, you know, I, I last saw her and she's like, it's so hard for me to get the image of you as like a five-year-old boy out of my head. Cause that's largely when she saw me was when I was a kid and I saw her last when I was in ninth grade and you know, she's 50 and she's a 20 year old son. I was like, holy shit, you have a 20 year old son in college. Like clearly we haven't talked for a long time. Um, that has been the really, really neat thing. It is definitely surreal. You know, funny enough, I have, I watched the I watched it the weekend it came out and I've never seen it since. Like I've never gone back and watched it. Um, so it, I think I was also probably by the end of the third or fourth week, just kind of like, okay, I am so burned out on this. Like I'm so ready to move on from this and get on with my life. Um, but you know, as you and I were talking about, like I think as far as cast members go, like my sort of exposure in this is very limited. Um, and so, you know, I'm seeing like what other people are dealing with, you know, just the endless amount of people contacting them and, you know, and contacting them for weird things. Like I, I would much rather be a guy in this situation than a woman because I, I you know, and I, you know, I'm not meaning to be that hypocritically, but like, I, I feel bad for some of the women and, and what they have to deal with in terms of the kinds of messages they get from people and how, um, I mean, you know, I think the creepy factor is much higher for uh, a woman, right, than it is for somebody like me. Uh, and you don't know I me mean, wrong. Like, there are definitely messages where I've seen come in and I'm like, uh, this person seems like a basket case. I'm not touching this. This is like a disaster waiting to happen. But it is absolutely surreal. Like, I, I never in never in a million years that I think anything like this is what, what, what happened in my life. But I also think that about the pandemic. Well, you know, I was going to ask you about that. So, you know, I, I uh, just I didn't introduce myself properly in the beginning, but you know, I've been a journalist and now work in public policy and had the chance to do, uh, you know, a lot of talks. But my, I started off in this in this line through a reality TV show. It was called Dream Job by ESPN. And I joked that 
you know, it was like apprentice without Donald Trump because we were competing for a professional job interview without the shenanigans of reality judges in the sense that it was a television show. And I, I know that experience was sort of surreal, but it was far back before social media was anything. Um, but yeah. you now live in the social media era. So how did this happen? Like in some ways, I think of it as the giant hand of fate that grabbed me. And in some yeah. ways, I'm getting the sense that the giant hand of fate grabbed you and put you on this show. Yeah. So there are a lot of factors, I think, that would play a role into this, right? Uh, in terms of being selected. You know, first, I think that, you know, I've spent probably the better part of 10 years building unmistakable creative, you know, writing books, building this creative career. So people knew me for that long before this. And one of the the things that happened is, you know, even through that, I was somewhat connected to people who were kind of, you know, in my past, many of them became podcast listeners over time. And one of them was a friend from college. And so she actually contacted me and said, Hey, um, there's this, you know, documentary my friend is doing, and I thought you would be an interesting person to be part of it. Uh, would you be up for it? And it was like, you know what? I mean, I am single, uh, you know, and in my mind, you know, I think some people had asked, like, was this just a publicity stunt, like to get prep, you know, publicity for work? And I was like, no. So, you know, what I said was like, in my mind, I went there thinking, yeah, I'm completely open minded. But I also realized like going in with too many expectations is a recipe for disappointment. So in my mind, I was like, best case scenario, I might meet somebody incredible. Worst case scenario, um, you know, I get a lot of, you know, exposure for my creative work. And I jokingly say I'm the most eligible Indian bachelor in America. Um, but, you know, and I don't entirely know that's true either. Uh, but, you know, it was kind of like, okay, you know, there definitely could be a downside. You know, I, I talked to a friend uh, on his podcast about this. He said, you know, there's a, a big sort of risk reward component to it, especially because of the fact that anything can be done in editing, you know, and basically you really have to be mindful of that, especially when you have a public presence you know, that you've crap, you've worked on for a long time. So you got to keep in mind that I'm not everything I do in the public eye is not just a reflection on me, but, you know, investors who've invested in unmistakable creative agents, editors, everything I do also reflects on them. So if I look like a jackass, it definitely reflects badly on them. And, and so um, that was definitely something that, you know, I had a lot of conversations uh, about with with the team before I kind of agreed to do it. I had lawyers look at media contracts and releases. Um, I talked to a dozen friends about it, um, you know, family. But in the end, it was like you said, it was kind of like, you know, fate sort of handed me this thing of, oh, um, the thing is that I think part of what it was, and I remember, you know, asking producers, like, why are you guys interested in me? And they're like, we got a lot of doctors and engineers. We need some, like, diversity. So, yeah, I jokingly say I'm like the token misfit of Indian matchmaking. Um, because I, like, probably the closest person to me who's, like, you know, not fitting that mold is um, that guy Vyasar. Um, and I think that, you know, I was kind of the sort of, whoa, who the hell is this guy? Like, he doesn't fit our model of what an Indian person is supposed to be like. He's nothing like what an Indian person uh, is supposed to be like. And so I think that that was one thing that kind of made me a standout. Now, you know, <laughs> how that plays out in terms of matches, uh, that's a whole other interesting conversation around how we assess people in culture. Like, you read the, the article I did about the South Asian arms race for impressive biodata. And, you know... It's funny because I think that, you know, people are like, have you, you know, always dated Indian girls? I was like, no, I have actually almost never dated Indian girls. Like I've dated one Indian girl in my life um, long distance and it didn't work out. But 
I, I think the thing that was really challenging for me, and you know, in the spirit of complete transparency, is that I, you know, regardless of matchmaking or not, always felt that um, I am going. I was being judged because of the choices I've made and the fact that they don't fit some sort of mold, and that I can't, like, you know, give people this sort of linear arc of, oh, this is what I do, and not have them kind of roll their eyes or think, oh, you know, that sounds like bullshit. Um, because, you know, we have uh, biases, like all of us have biases, like the, you know, your cognitive biases are just embedded into you. But, you know, you have a cultural bias, your cultural bias, if you grow up as an Indian person is to view people through the lens of their accomplishments. Um, and that's just kind of how it's hardwired. So like, you know, I, I, I was like, I remember one of my friends, like, what's the difference between a LinkedIn profile and biodata? I said nothing, it would just be like adding your romantic preferences to your LinkedIn profile. Um, that's about the only difference I can think of. And, you know, like I, I, I remember hearing, you know, about this. And it's like, you know, in a conversation with Seema, I was like, lady, I'm not looking for to hire somebody for a job, you know. Um, and it was kind of amusing to me, like, you know, being asked, oh, like you have a preference for occupation, you know, like college they went to. I was like, did you read my profile? I'm like, do I seem like a person who would give a shit about any of that? Um because the truth is, dude, like I was raised to believe those things are of great value as well, only to come to the realization that the people who I am closest to possess none of those things and they're extraordinary people. Um, and that was a really eye opening thing. Like you talk to a thousand people on a podcast like this, what that does is it basically stretches your model of the world and expands it significantly to the point where you start to basically see things through lenses that you've never been exposed to. Like you have so many more data points to draw from. Whereas you grow up in the culture that we did, the amount of, it's almost like they purposely limit your exposure to data points to put you into a box of like doctor, engineer, lawyer, whatever. And you're a journalist, so you know this. But, um, and, 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 you know, like I, I kind of told my dad, I said, look, you know, I'm 30 years old, I'm broken, I'm living at home, I've done it your way. Clearly, this is not the result you or I want. And so let me do this my way and, and knowing me wrong, it didn't come without its struggles. Like it's, um, I mean, doing this is not for everybody. It's not for the faint of heart. It does a number on your self-esteem. Uh, you know, like I, I think that until you find some degree of success with creative work and, and, you know, that, and we're not talking like breakout, you know, best selling, you know, author millions of copies success, but enough to get to continue doing your work and make a living from it. Um, you feel very insecure about it. And uh, it, and even then, it's kind of like, oh, I mean, I, after a book deal with a publisher, I remember having this conversation uh, with this doctor at some winery that the guy owned. And, you know, he talks to all the other kids. So, yeah, what do you do? And every one of them was like a doctor or whatever. And he looks at me, I was like, I, was like, I write books. The first question is like, oh, is that lucrative? I'm like, you're an investor in a winery that's basically lost money for four years. You're asking me if what I do is lucrative? <laughs> like... Well, that's what I call liquid assets, right? Um, you know, yeah. but uh, so let, let, let's, let's kind of like, you know, I wanted to move the conversation on to uh, a very profound aspect, right? Okay, just think about it this way. Um, for a lot of people in the Western world, uh, there is this caricature around arranged marriages, right? And, and, and I, yeah. I always push back on it saying, look, it's not, you know, the archaic stereotypes, right? Those d died, you know, with time. I mean, it's not like two people or you know, foretold to each other and, you know, you don't meet each other till the day of the wedding. And, you know, if you break off that marriage, it's like, you know, you're banished from the home or the village or it, that's, that's ridiculous. In some ways I dis describe it as, you know, parents swipe right sometimes on a profile and then 21st century technology takes over, right? It's like your friend setting you up and then 
you, Facebook, Skype, uh, you know, email, WhatsApp, and meet each other. And each of you decide. And it's sort of being set up by parents instead of friends. And that's why that's the way I like to think of arranged marriages today. Uh, mm-hmm. But somehow, would you say that this show failed to kind of add a progressive touch to it? This show sort of went to a point where it caricatured everything that what people know of arranged marriages being wrong. Uh, and accentuate yeah. on on a Western platform for a global audience. Yeah, I mean, truth be told, I think you you hit the nail on the head. What I my biggest criticism was that it wasn't adapted to uh, American culture. Like there wasn't you know sort of cultural adaptation of oh you know like in American culture you might be introduced by a friend you would never meet the parents on a first date like that adds a layer of awkwardness that just kind of kills the ability to actually discover each other without that pressure. Um, and to me, and especially like, it's kind of like you force fit this, you know, concept onto uh, American culture, thinking that it's going to work. And, and to me, that's actually one of the big reasons that like, it was a failure in terms of, um, you know, actually having successful matches, you know, and that to me was one of those things that I, I just felt like was a, a horrible oversight on, you know, on the part of SEMA. Like I, you know, and I'm happy to say that publicly at this point because I, I you know, I don't think there's anything like, you know, plenty of journalists have criticized them. I think, I think the producers did a phenomenal job, to be honest. Like I, I think that they had, you know, great intentions. They worked really hard. I think that they, um, they did something important. I think that what Smithy did was to start a conversation that we should have had 20 years ago. Um, yeah. You know, she brought a lot of things to the surface that we have basically as as a culture brushed under the rug because that's what Indian people do. We don't talk about mental health. We don't talk about, you know, colorism. We don't. It's like, oh, you know, and the thing is, all those things are present. You know, one of my friends said part of why there were those cringeworthy moments. And this is a friend who also is Indian is because every one of us who's grown up Indian has experienced some of those moments that we're like, oh, I'm like, yeah, but we we have that that cringeworthy moment because for us, they're like. Yeah, you can literally connect a dot to every one of those experiences in your own life. Right. Um, and that is just such a, uh, you know, and, and that's a good thing because now we're talking about it. Um, but as far as as that goes, what you're talking about, yeah, I do think that they they missed it. But I remember watching Love is Blind uh, when it first came out. And yet Love is Blind isn't one of those things where you'll piss away nine hours of your life and you won't you like you literally can't stop. I remember, you know, we watched the first episode and we went to lunch with two, my best friend and his wife, who are both very, very smart people. And they they're like, oh, you guys have only watched the first episode. And they kind of fill us in. And we're like, God damn it. Like now we have to go watch what happens. And I remember three days later, I texted him. I was like, thanks to you two idiots. We just lost nine hours of our lives. You're two of the smartest people I know and you're procreating. I'm very disappointed. I mean, obviously joking, like I love them. Um, but the, 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 the reason I brought that up is because I remember Nick Lachey, you know, at the beginning saying, we're about to do an experiment that's never been done before. And I was like, what are you talking about, man? Read a fucking book. I'm like, Indians have been doing this experiment for thousands of years. <laughs> like, um, you know, you talk to a person from behind a wall and decide you're going to marry them without even seeing that. Uh, but I think that uh, there is, you know, I, I do think that they there was aspects of it that were definitely much more westernized. But um, I don't know, man, like you grew up in India. So like, I, I always wonder, like, did you think that that's how you were going to be set up? Like your parents were going to introduce you to somebody? Uh, and I realize you said I can't ask questions, but for the sake of discussion, yeah. I have to. Hear. No, uh, I, I, like, I'm glad you asked me that. Man. What was your experience of this? 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. 
It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, I'm still unmarried, so let's hope that <laughs> at some point that'll change. Um, <laughs> I, I have no intention of being cast on season two, though. Look, uh, and I, I, actually, this is what I wanted to kind of push back on. Um, the, because I think the biggest notion, I think, uh, you know, like, and you would have seen that, Shrini, as well, when you got stereotyped as, you know, people didn't know the difference between Tamil and Telugu, and I'm Tamilian, in the sense that India is not one country, right? It's plenty of countries. It's like, it's it's a mini Europe, right? The way France is different from Lithuania and Liechtenstein is different from Scotland and Ireland is different from Italy. Each state in India is different. And in each state, there's so many different communities and all. And eventually, I think it comes down to what kind of family you come from, right? And mm. the more if your family is progressive or not. And let's let's use the point. Case in point, Akshay's family or Pradyuman's family is, I'm sorry to say, some of the most archaic, redolent, you know, uh, you know, stereotypical uh, notions of what families are. And and, and that mm. comes with sort of a notion of like the Marwadi business family in the sense that you look at the way Akshay's mom spoke about it saying, oh, I'm going to pick, you know, one of these three girls, I'm going to choose. It, I'm like, what you, you're, you're playing any mini miny mo with a life partner. I mean, this like, like this isn't, you, you just randomly just picking anyone and say, be happy with them because it's done. It's ridiculous, yeah. right? So I think my parents obviously left it up to me. And as a case in point, I'm a little over 30, uh, 31, 32, 33 now. And, and, and there's no, been no pressure. Uh, I left it mm. up to myself to kind of, and in some ways there was never that notion that, oh, this is how it's going to happen. And it, like, in, in, oh, oh, yes, one could play the card that, oh, I'm a guy. So I probably have it easier, maybe, but it, it was always left up to me and my, my elder sister. She's, um, you know, she, she married someone out of her own, uh, who's actually Telugu from the US. Uh, she married someone out of her own uh, volition, someone she met. So yeah. there's not a question of like, this is what we're going to do. But I guess, like, I think the most important thing, Trini, and I think you agree with that, it depends on what kind of family you come from. Because at the mm. end of the day, the equation between you and your parents, right? Even your siblings yeah. sort of takes a backseat in that uh, equation. Uh, and sometimes yeah. even your parents take a backseat. If you're really, you know, if your parents say, I want you to do this, and if you're strong-willed and determined, you know, and it, it comes down to you. So I would say it really depends on that. And I think where the show really missed the forest for the tree, it's like, Seema was talking and if this is how it happened in India. I'm like, no, it's different communities in India, different cultures, different castes. My family's yeah. nothing like Akshay's family. God forbid. Like, I mean, these are people <laughs> who are touch on a barge pole. I mean, I, I mean, I don't mind saying this out loud, but I mean, I'm like, Akshay has a personality for doorknob. And, you know, so, uh, and like the way, and I think this is what I wanted to kind of segue to another question and ask you this, and if I could throw the ball back and, um, there, there was this notion, like, and the one thing I would take away from the show, the way they spoke about marriage was, you think about it, it's sort of a person and period, right? The one is the time period, right? In Akshay's mm. case, and his family's case, they're like, oh, he's 25, which is really, really young by, by most standards. He's 25, yeah. you have to get married, right? So they looked at time period and they're like, the person is secondary. Because look at the way they spoke about it. We have three girls and we're going to pick anyone for you. Be happy for the rest of your life. You know, procreate like bunnies and give us grandchildren. That's what sort of the notion was, right? Whereas yeah. I think in the Western world or how it's supposed to be is you find the person and you kind of decide where you are with that person and what stage of life you're in. And then it's the process of management. Mm -hmm. right? so I'd call it process and person. Here it was like, oh, he's 25. So process is getting married. 
and we find the person. So it's like square peg, round hole. Whereas yeah. most other ways, it's like, okay, we find the person and then go through the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the, it's, it's funny, you know, like we would bring up timelines and I remember like, you know, cause obviously like once this dropped, you know, my parents, friends, um, you know, it was like aunties, they all descended like vultures to like call my parents and to find out more. And there's definitely still messages in my Facebook, um, you know, messages that I saw, like spam messages that I was like, oh, I was like, yeah, I'm not responding to this because I really don't want to talk to this person you want to introduce me to. So, um, but I, I think the the idea of this timeline thing is so arbitrary. You know, it's like, I remember someone was like, well, you need to get married on time, right? I was like, you know what? I'm like, this happened a day ago. Give me a moment to breathe. And, and she thought it was ridiculous. She was like, and I was like, on, on time for who? I'm like, I'm the one who's going to have to live with this for the rest of my life. You might not even be around for this. So, you know, I didn't say that to her, but um, I, I think that the, the, that is the thing that I, I find really troubling is that we impose these very arbitrary timelines on people. And, uh, you know, unfortunately I feel like that that leads to very bad choices. Like, you know, I, I read it, wrote it in the, the article, you know, the, the South Asian arms race for impressive biodata. I said like, you know, if you've got a daughter, do you really think that she's going to make a wise choice in a life partner? If she's constantly being told, Oh, you're getting older, you need to choose. Um, yeah, like, do you really want to know that your daughter, this person that you supposedly love unconditionally is going to settle for, just whatever she can get. Um, like I had a friend who was here, uh, you know, uh, having drinks with us one a couple nights ago, like just a few few days after it came out, and we were talking about this. And you know, he's divorced, and um, you know, his first wife was American, so you know, his, his parents would you know reach out, or friends of theirs would reach out, and they would you know make introductions, and he'd be like, "So this is the best you think I can do?" And then I kind of started to feel that way too. I was like, "Really?" I'm like, "These are your standards for me?" I'm like, "These are questionable." Um, to the point where, like, I told my dad after one conversation, I said, you know what, because he, he, he texted me and he's like, hey, did you talk to this auntie? I said, yeah, dad. I was like, I've made a decision. The only person I'm going to talk to from now on is my cousin Rama. I was like, because she's the only person whose judgment I trust. So you can basically filter everything through her. Um, and I will only talk to her about this because she's the only person who will handle this with some level of sanity. And, uh, you know, and it's kind of amusing. Like she's just become sort of the guinea pig. Like it's like they just filter everything through her. And, you know, it's funny because when I told my dad that apparently my mom and dad both called her and had an hour conversation with her uh, to talk about this. And I was like, well, that, they, you know, and, uh, you know, and then she called me, you know, for an hour, like, and we had an hour chat. And I remember the other day she texted me about something. She was like, hey, Shreen, do you have some time to talk? And I texted her back. I was like, like, are you going to try to set me up with somebody? Because I would be like, no, I don't have time to talk. Um, there is the, this just sort of weird uh, expectation of, of some sort of timeline. And I just, I, I've resisted that because I just, you know, like, it, it's so much more expensive and, and traumatic to have to like go through a wedding that doesn't work out uh, or, you know, a divorce than it is to like wait and make a good choice. And somehow I, I don't know why that doesn't seem to like land with Indian people. Like I, I think we treat, and I, I, I think it's like, you know, 10 times worse for women. Like I had a friend who interviewed me for her podcast and, you know, her opening question is, what do you like most about being a man? And, you know, I, I was like, wow, that's a, that's a really kind of loaded question. Cause you could just say something stupid. Uh, and so I told her like, look, I'll, I'll answer this from the perspective of culture, the thing is, you have this double standard. And in all honesty, to me, that's absurd. I've seen some breathtakingly beautiful 40-year-old Indian women. And like, why would we treat those people like there's something wrong with them? 
or that they have an expiration date. Like if it's somebody who is amazing, somebody you feel compatible with, you know, I'm 42 years old. I'm not looking to basically make a judgment based on somebody's age. You know, a friend was asking me, you know, uh, and of course the question comes, okay, well, what about kids? And that is a fair question. That's a hard one. But in my mind, it's like, if you meet this amazing person and it's either them and, you know, no kids or somebody that you don't find nearly as appealing and don't have nearly the depth of connection with, but you get to have kids. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I think I would choose, you know, the person I'm in love with and no kids over the person I'm not in love with and the possibility of kids every single time. Because, you know, like, yeah, maybe you get to have this one thing, but it's like, oh, so you're going to have these amazing kids, but you're going to have a horrible relationship with your significant other. What kind of kids are going to come out of that marriage? Yeah, no, that's true. And uh, I, I think that's, that's, that's a good point. And, and, and I think one of the things that I was really surprised by when I saw on the show was um, it wasn't just people in India. This is largely Indian Americans. And if you look at the cast as well, there was, I think it's almost like half and half, like Indian Americans. And there was always this notion, I think, because um, I grew up in a family which had more Indian Americans than Indian nationals as well. Like I was, our family's only one that, most Desi families that joked have one family in America and everyone back in India. In our case, we were the only family in India and everyone was back in the US. Uh, you know, so I, I kind of saw that. And the, and, and the view I always got was, um, you know, by virtue of growing up in America, you've kind of, you know, eschewed from the norms, not norms, but sort of the societal pressures. And you will find your own way, marry outside of the community, marry outside nationality, you know, not marry, you know, or just, you know, raise a family with someone you're not married to. And it was like a free pass for all that was sort of given. Um, but when I saw like people like yourself and so many other people on the show who are Indian American, that was a little surprise. So tell me that. I mean, what what's the notion that suddenly was it just a sense of oh the apps didn't work out or we haven't met people or we were in a relationship that didn't work out then we want to kind of now go the traditional try and test it and let's see how this works out. Well, it, look, it, it's funny because one of my friends from high school actually saw this and and she contacted me and she's an Indian girl. She's like, I was so proud of you. She's like because she said I think that you know the UI knew. 15 years ago would never have been open-minded enough to even attempt something like this. Um, I think part of it was, it was that, you know, like you, you kind of exhaust all your other options and it's kind of like, okay, you know, again, being 42 years old, I'm not going to lie and say that, oh, you know, like I don't want a life partner. I don't want to meet somebody that was, you know, a pretty important thing to me. So, um, and it still is. So, you know, like we'd exhausted other routes and even my parents had said, okay, are you open? I mean, to the point where, you know, when I showed up at my sister's wedding without a date, like I remember, you know, a couple of months before I was my therapist office, like literally in tears saying, man, I've attended every single person's wedding without a date. Like I'm going to attend my own sister's wedding without a date. Like at this point, the only wedding I'm going to have a date to is my own, which even at this point seems likely, (laughs) but, um, you know, but it didn't, what, what I kind of came to the realize, I, I came to sort of two realizations. One was that that day was not about me at all. It was about my sister. Um, but I also realized that I was like, wait a minute, like this could be a fantastic opportunity if I play my cards right. And like, let me put these people to work and have them do my bidding. Like they should fill my dating pipeline if they're so interested, which they all claim to be. So I literally opened my speech by saying, look, for all the aunties who are in the audience who want to know when I'm getting married. And I put a picture, I, I, put, I literally put a slide of my phone number on the screen and said, you can text profiles, pictures, and all other relevant information to this number. I'll be expecting a full report on your progress by the end of the week. Now let's get to why we're actually here. Because 
what I realized was that I wanted that would help me avoid a lot of stupid conversations after it was all so over. Self deprecating, uh, right? You're like, yeah, I'm gonna fire the opening shot at myself, so I'm gonna yes, pay you the trouble. Well, well, not only self deprecating. I'm like, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna call your bluff. I'm like, get to work. If you guys are so interested, then fine. Yeah, yeah you have cool. now. I, I'm giving you permission to get to work on my behalf. Um, and you know, it's jo- like I always jokingly say, I'm like, these are the worst fucking unpaid employees in the world. They didn't do shit after that for months. You know, it was like, and I remember like one of my my mom's friends came over to dinner, and I was like, Vidya, you're fired. I was like, she's like, it's been a month. She's like, I actually wasn't there for the reception. I heard about it. I was like, all right, I'll give you two more weeks and no go. Um, but I mean, you know, some of them are really sweet, but. The other thing is, look, man, I also was like, I had a captive audience and I look good at a tux and I give good speeches. I was like, nobody here stands a chance against me. I'm a public speaker. Uh, but and, and the funny thing is, I got a paid speaking gig out of it. Um, so what, you know, it was like you said, it was kind of like somewhat self-deprecating, somewhat opportunist and also realizing that, you know what, like by reframing it, it could be this really positive thing. Yeah. But, you know, to to the point of your original question, you know, I think it was about realizing that, okay, why am I closing off this option um, when something actually really amazing could come from it? Because I've had friends who have met um, through their parents introducing them and they are beyond happy. And it was just like, oh, okay. Um, you know, some of my sister's friends, like I think some of the guests at my sister's wedding, like their parents introduced them and, you know, they... It totally hit it off. And, it, you know, I mean, it definitely wasn't the sort of, hey, meet the parents on like date one type of thing. But still, it was like, okay. And in a lot of ways, you're like, wait a minute, why would you not take advantage of this massive network of people who pretty much can introduce you to like endless amounts of prospects? It's like, okay, so I can basically do that or I can keep swiping right on Bumble and basically play the fucking slot machine lottery, like playing, you know, like trying to find matches on mumble is literally like, you know, putting quarters into a slot machine in Vegas and hoping it comes up, you know, three cherries and every now and then you get it, but then you keep putting more quarters and you keep losing money. And so in my mind, I was like, all right, what, why not? You know what? Because the thing is that you just don't know. I realized it was my own biases of, Oh, you know, the only people who have to do this are people who are losers. And I was like, okay, obviously I'm not a loser, although, you know, <laughs> I might have been called one on new oh, television. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was just one of those things was like, all right, you know what? What the hell? Why not? Uh, why not see where this leads? I, you know, you got, uh, you got to remember, like, you know, we were talking earlier about the fact that I have been exposed to so many different models of possibility. Um, and what I realized was that my own stubbornness and my own judgment about that process was closing me off from the potential of meeting somebody amazing. So, like, you know, I'll give you another ridiculous example. There, there are two of these that you know come to mind. So, I, I interviewed this economist um, named Allison Schrager once, and we were talking about sort of you know decision making and risk. And so, you know, my ongoing joke is that I don't date women with small dogs because I said, listen, I'm like every time I've dated a woman with a small dog, that shit up in my face. Um, and so I was like every, and I was like, and every woman who's had a small dog that wasn't somebody I did kind of fucked up my life. So, and, and, you know, like she was like, I was like, my, my business partner, Brian was like, he's like one Trini, you're not a dog person. And two, three women is not a large enough data set to make that assumption. Right. Uh, and I remember once I like, get a bad breakup with an Indian girl and I was like, I'm done. And I remember with, with Indian women and, and Brian, when, you know, my old business partner is like, Trini, he's like, you can't rule out an entire race of women, particularly your own. 
<laughs> you know? Um, which, but the, the funny thing is, it, it's, it, it speaks to the absurdity of my, my biases in this situation when I was like, oh, I was willing to just completely rule out this option um, based on a few experiences. And so, you know, and, and I think that what this was was saying, okay, you know what? I'm open-minded. Why not? Like, uh, it, that's the interesting thing. I think with age, you become much more, not necessarily flexible about values or things that matter, but you are not so set on how something is supposed to look. I mean, dude, my life has been a series of, you know, crises and things that haven't gone according to plan. Nobody graduates into two, recess, two recessions, you know, grad school and undergrad. Um, and so what I, I come to realize is that nothing in my life looks anywhere near the way I thought it was going to. So how is this any different? Maybe the way this happens isn't going to look the way I thought it was going to. And so why, somebody once told me that if you are so attached to the way that you think it should be, you actually close yourselves off to all the amazing ways it actually could be. And that stayed with me. And it was, believe it or not, a woman who came here to talk about love. Um, and that, that really kind of stayed in my mind of, okay, you know what? Uh, you're right. I have a very clear idea. Like the other thing is I think, you know, you grow up in, in America, you get sort of conditioned to like believe in this romantic comedy version of what love and, and relationships are like. And it took me a long yeah. time to get, you know, to let go of that. Well, was it just too much of, you know, all the, the New York love stories and just, just, you know, the whole basis of like the, how I make your mother thing. Right. I mean, it's, uh, well, yeah, of course. Like you look, I mean, even so like, yeah, if you notice, even you all have a Ted Mosby mo moment, we all have that yeah. Barney Stinson. Of course. Well, you remember. Right? Marshall and Lily, they're all around you, right? And I mean. Well, remember Nadia like even mentioned on, you know, she literally says that like this moment on the boat was her rom-com moment. And I was like, that's so interesting. And, and, and but that what that shows you is how deeply embedded this narrative is uh, in our culture about finding love. Like, I mean, you think about it, like romantic comedies, TV shows, you know, everything, pop culture really reinforces this uh, sort of mythical narrative about what drug. finding love is like. It's a drug, it's addictive, and it sometimes leads you to have, not hallucinations, but you tend to have these scenarios that it'll have to work out for you at some point, right? Because you're like, I'm a good yeah. guy, I'm smart, I'm qualified. And, you know, it's like a process of life that it'll just mm -hmm. happen when it happens, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I, and that's the thing, right? Is that I remember, you know, like I, this, you know, again, my old business partner, Brian, he's extremely, he's like, I think you have this delusion that you're going to have this like rom com experience. Like you go out with one girl and it's going to be like mad love. He's like, he's like, I think what you should do is go out on 50 dates before you make any conclusions. He said, because then he said, you're not going to be so attached to, yeah. you know, sort of this idea. Um, and, and, you know, and it's funny because it takes us back to kind of what we were talking about, right, when we started this conversation about expectations, right? Um, when you go into any situation with expectations, like you are by definition attached. And when that situation doesn't meet your expectations, um, and this isn't just true for dating, this is true for life in general, you're inevitably going to be disappointed. Yeah. And so like you set yourself up for disappointment right from the start when you approach things that way. And, you know, like um, Emily Fletcher, who is the founder of Ziva Meditation, has this you know brilliant quote in her book where she says, you know, detachment is sexy and neediness is not. I mean, when you go in with expectations, you're also needy. There's nothing attractive about that. Um, you know, and, and the thing is, like, once I started to see that and experience it firsthand on dates, I was like, okay, wow, this is a really different approach. When you come here expecting nothing, everything turns out well. Um, sometimes better than you ever expected. And so that to me was one of those lessons. And that's why I was very clear because, you know, one of my friends um, asked me on his podcast, did you go there really with the intention of finding love? And I said, look, 
I would, I, you know, I, I, what I said is I was open to it. I wasn't going there with this like expectation that this has to lead to something where I'm going to be devastated or disappointed. Um, because again, that would be a setup for, you know, not having fun in an experience that actually, honestly, for me was nothing but fun. Like, you know, maybe other people who, who, you know, were around me didn't think so, but I enjoyed myself. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's, I mean, that's great to hear. I mean, you kind of went in with, you know, a very serious show with some amount of levity. Um, I, I think I want to just kind of, you know, just circle back, um, you know, to, to, to a very profound point. The point, the fact that I think the most profound overnote for the show was the fact that none of the people that Simanti set up ended up finding their own, their life partner or found anyone else. Um, you know, so it's, I mean, while the show was a success in terms of eyeball rating and the fact that, you know, we're having a podcast on it, it technically failed in its origins, right? Of finding someone that's like, being on Shark Tank and no entrepreneur gets picked. Yeah, yeah no, it, it really is. And it's, it's one of those things where, so to me, you know, and I, I said this in the process of, of writing that article, I said, you know, what to me this indicated was that we as a culture have a serious update to do on this entire process. Like, I personally think that the term biodata should be discarded from our like vernacular. Because yeah. it's such a degrading term, both to men and women, you know, like you're not a piece of meat or a stock, you know, and that I think if, if we would get rid of that from our culture, uh, it would be it would be, you know, I think it would actually lead to a lot more matches. And it was really funny as I was talking to a you know a friend that my sister introduced me to. And, you know, I told her I was interviewing this podcast guest who was an emotional regulation researcher who was phenomenal. And uh, she was like, that sounds like a weird job. And then she went and looked. She was like, okay, her, you know, her bio data is legit. Like we were, I mean, she was joking, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I think that that to me is really where the problem lies because what is biodata? Biodata is basically that distinction of what David Brooks calls resume values, right? It's like, oh, what have you accomplished? What degrees do you have? How much money do you make? And the problem is that, yeah, those things might lead to some, you know, semblance of um, stability and security, all of which are illusions. I mean, shit, nobody thought we're going to be in a fucking pandemic. And, you know, look at our lives now. Who honestly can, you know, say that anything is predictable? Um, yeah. And so that I think is one of the fatal flaws in that, but you know, and I, I said this before when, when, you know, this girl had interviewed me for our comedy podcast, I said, you know, like, I, I think that part of what made Nadia such an endearing character was that when you saw the answers of what, uh, she was looking for, when she answered Seema's questions, you noticed that she never once brought up anything about a person's occupation. Like literally none of the things that she mentioned were resume yeah. values. They were all character values. Um, and I think that that is what drew so many people to her because of, of that. You know, like I jokingly said, I was like, oh, she's a much more likable character than I am. Um, but the, the thing is, there is is really you something. Know, people on the show kind of just spoke more about superficially about what they wanted. Well, I, I think the the is. Not everybody, but I think there were that de- there was definitely a lot of that, you know, to it was like, oh, this person needs to make X amount of money or have, you know, some like level of status. And, you know, like I heard a journalist who on another podcast, they brought who brought me up, somebody had sent me a link and, you know, she brought up that, you know, Srini the loser moment. And she was like, yeah, it was like, oh, you know, Srini's like earning capacity isn't as high. Like I was like, how the fuck do you know that? <laughs> like, you don't know me. And um, 
uh, you know, forgive my, pardon my French, but the, the reality is that like, it's like, wait a minute, because I don't fit this mold, you're going to make an assessment that is probably wildly inaccurate. Yeah. Um, having done no digging, right, at all, um, simply based on your surface level read on, you know, who I am because of what you see on paper, you know, and that to me is where, why, that is, I think, the number one reason why we have to get rid of this term altogether. Like, don't put the stupid, like, in fact, they should remove all of those things from biodata and basically say, okay, this is who you are as a person. Like, let's remove all the superficial things. I mean, obviously, like, you know, you want physical attraction with a person. But I, I think that I want to know what is my life going to be like with this person? I'm not going to be working with them at their job. So I don't like, why am I going to base whether they should be my future life partner on, you know, what their resume says? You know, like, that's insane. <laughs> Can I uh, kind of come back to the whole point or the fact that, you know, when we spoke about this person over, process. That is, you know, people decide, oh, the process is to get married, then we find the person. In that myopia, you know, because, you know, you try to find someone with very specific, has to be so-and-so tall, has to be so-and-so fair, has to be, you know, so-and-so career, earning so much, that it's almost trying to manufacture an individual and not letting the person, like, how do you know if you're not going to like a lawyer more than a doctor, or you're going to like a doctor more than a lawyer? I mean, it's the person, right? And you end up backing liking the person irrespective of what the profession is i mean that's a big part but that's not the only part and i feel that sometimes there's a sense of myopia and and maybe it's the the myopia of the previous generation but you can't blame the previous generation anymore if the next generation carries it on case in point um one of the people that you were set up with didn't want to meet lawyers even though she was a lawyer so i just want to that, that myopia sort of is something that kind of i find very jarring mm-hmm yeah, the it is weird, right? That it's taken us this long, and uh, the thing is that here's the thing: a lot of this narrative was still prevalent even as late as when I was in college, even though I grew up in this country for the most part. You know, um, it, it, that the narrative of okay, like you have this linear trajectory of you know you go to literally our trajectory was you go to you know undergrad, you you know you get a decent job, you go to grad school, you get a better job, you get married. Um, you have kids, you buy your house in the suburbs and that's it. And then you hang around basically, um, drinking chai, you know, watching Bollywood movies and gossiping with your relatives. Like that's how I describe the Indian life path, uh, because I've seen it unfold. Right. But the thing is that now you have a world in which that's just, you know, increasingly not true. Um, and so I think part of what had to happen is that culture had to catch up and, and society had to catch up by, by basically dismantling these structures that were once in place that basically make this narrative something that just is not sustainable anymore. Um, but the thing is that, you know, cultural conditioning is incredibly potent. You know, like, where did we get values from? We get them, you know, from our parents and, you know. Um, and those values evolve throughout our lives. You know, you assimilate values from the environment around you, from the people that you hang out with. So like, so you go off to college and this is all fresh on my mind because I, I just finished writing this, you know, five, five of the most important decisions you'll ever make article. But when that happens, uh, you know, it fundamentally alters, you know, things in your life. Um, and so you can't have a situation where, it, the, the thing is that that starts to alter your life. The problem is that, you know, for many people, these sort of social programs are deeply embedded to the point where they will never change because of how hardwired they are, they are into us, you know? And look, 
I would be lying to you if I told you that, that those sort of prestige biases weren't implicit in how I look at this through to, as well. So, you know, I was talking with a buddy of mine uh, who was a guest here and we actually talked about this on the show. Um, and he said, you know, like we both would say, okay, you're like, you're looking at a Bumble profile and it's like no college degree swipe left. And yeah. I realized it's ironic because we're both entrepreneurs, but despite the fact that we think the narrative is nonsense, that bias still impacts our own actions. You know, he said, he's like, I don't think I could date a girl who didn't go to college. And I kind of agree. Like, I feel that way. Yeah, um, that, that's a sense of like, we're both, a sense that we are, we are also, in, you know, wanting to be uh, like intellectual, we're intellectual curious. So there's a sense of knowledge that we seek. I mean, more than the degree, it's a sense of that someone didn't go to college, you've kind of feel that they either, well, obviously there are some extenuating circumstances, but you feel that they kind of, just skip short on education or they don't value it enough, right? So there's that perception. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's you know, again, the thing that is, is so crazy is that, you know, like, again, it's how you're socialized has such a profound impact on the way that you think about anything. And, and we don't recognize what a profound impact that has. You know, you and I, you know, we're starting, you know, talking, you know, before we hit record about this sort of uh, what you call a birth lottery, which I think is a really good place to kind of, you know, come full circle and wrap things up. But like, there is a, there is, you know, whether we like it or not, some semblance of a birth lottery, like you read, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's outliers, and you suddenly see, wait a minute, there are all these hidden advantages to people who get to accomplish some of what they did. I'd be lying to you if I told you I didn't have hidden advantages that are part of the life that I have. Um, growing up with Indian parents who instill rigid discipline in you is absolutely a hidden advantage that I don't think other people necessarily have. And you know what? I'm able to write every day to show up and do something for 10 years because that played a role. All right. Let, you know, the, this podcast is another perfect example. Like people are like, oh, teach a podcasting course. And I was like, I don't want to do that partially because I don't think I could ever help somebody replicate this um, because I had a lot of sort of outlier biases or a, a lot of what I would call outlier advantages. You know, like I started 10 years ago, like I hit somehow I got a 10 year head start on what became a massive cultural trend. Um, I had a mentor who was a guy on Twitter who was a guest who decided for whatever reason to basically take me on as a personal project and guide me through a transformation that ultimately led to getting to write books as a publisher. I mean, so many of these things are, are what we call sort of, you know, it, it's the birth lottery, like you talked about, um, to be born to the parents that I was born to, to have the types of parents who say, we want you to get educated, we want you to be disciplined, we want you to go to the best damn school that you could possibly get into. It doesn't matter, I mean, like, never mind the fact that it was all downhill from there in terms of my academic performance, but just to be in that position in the first place, there are so many advantages that you were given um, and so much privilege that you're given to be able to, I mean, even you, right? Like you get to go and, you know, study journalism, uh, you know, in a country where pretty much, you know, growing up in India, where, you know, when our parents were growing up, their outcomes were pretty much binary. Oh, yeah. It was security or poverty, nothing in between. Yeah. Like my dad would kind of always have this phrase, right? It was engineering, medicine, or you're dead loss or join the government. Yeah. And said he couldn't stand blood. So he picked engineering and, and, you know, and, and that's also a sense of evolution of time, right? I mean, um. Our grandfather's generation, as we say in India, was roti kapra makan, you know, food, clothing, shelter. The dad's generation was food, clothing, shelter, but bank account for kids and plus education. Education was the only upward social mobility. That is, if you didn't come from business, a business family where you could bequeath the, the inheritances, 
or you know you weren't in like government or or you weren't in Bollywood or something where you had family connections. Education was the only upward social mobility, right? It was the rat race, and hence hence it became very streamlined. Of this is what you got to do. This is how you got to get marks. This is how you got to you know everything was built up to the Indian dream was the American dream, and because for men too long, you know that that's what it was, and you know um, uh, that's what it's been. Uh, you know, I I, I kind of have to come back to the show and ask you this, and uh, you know. Would you say that the show has, I mean, for you, I guess it's done a lot more, like more people get to know you, but you weren't obviously one of the main characters, right? You were sort of like came in as a side and then um, became, but what about how, and, and I know you've spoken to some of the other people on the show, but like, has it done, uh, for some, I guess it's done well, but for some other people, they're probably under the scanner a little more because of the way they behaved or the practices they displayed or the way the parents behaved. I mean, how do you think that, I mean, yes, they're known now, but do you think that's going to help them going forward? You know, that this is, you know, this is a, as, um, a tough one. It's hard to say, you know, like this, this goes back to, to sort of, you know, public image and yet, you know, yeah. I mean, look, there's backlash, uh, for, for some of these people. I personally think there's a lot to be learned for everybody here. You know, I, I think it, to me, what it speaks to honestly, uh, is, the fact that like the level of empathy that we lose when we only see people through avatars is really, really unfortunate because you look, I, you know, as you, you pointed out, people said things that maybe probably led to, to outcomes for them. And like, I mean, anybody listening to this who's watched the show knows kind of what we're referencing, which I won't speak to specifically. Um, but again, you know, like my sort of thing I, I've said the entire time is like, you know, whether you, find people appalling or not, or whether you find their behavior appalling or not. And in some cases it absolutely was, um, at the end of the day, you kind of have to say, okay, like what is empathy? Empathy is putting yourself in the shoes of that person. Now, you know, your, your natural temptation, like, well, I would never behave like that. Yeah, probably that's true. But imagine, you know, if you, if the, particularly like for women listening to this, like your, your, you know, your daughter or your sister, somebody who's related to you found themselves in a situation where they said something. And, you know, and it was, you know, packaged and, you know, presented to the world in a way that will make them look bad. Um, you know, you really should think about the sort of, um, you know, empathy aspect there. Like, okay, what are we getting out of, you know, out of this? Like, I, this is why I've refused to put any fuel into this fire because I'm like, what am I going to get out of attacking somebody? Like anybody who's like, oh, this person sucks. You dodged a bullet. I didn't engage in that conversation. Anytime those new people showed up, I would say, well, thank you. That's, and they would say something really nice about me. And so I was like, I literally would be like, that's really kind of you. Um, I hope you check out the podcast. Um, because guess what? Like I have nothing to gain from, you know, fueling that fire. Like what benefit is there to that? Um, so I think that it's, here's the thing, it's tough, man. The reality is that media has a very potent way of shaping perception. And, you know, the example, and I wrote about this yesterday, actually, I, I did a whole tweet storm about this, which you might've seen, where, you know, we don't, whether we like it or not, when you present yourself in a public forum, you are shaping perception. And some of that perception is completely out of your control. Um, and some of it, is wildly inaccurate uh, because of the fact that what we do is humans make meaning. You know, like I think that, and media 
basically creates this sort of idealized version of who a person is or a non-idealized version of who a person is based on the fact that um, they have said or done something. And the example I'll give you is Glenn Beck, right? I had no idea who Glenn Beck was in 2013. Never heard of him. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm a you know surfer from Berkeley, so use your imagination. Like my, I used to joke my dream media appearance was The Daily Show, and Glenn Beck is like literally the opposite of The Daily Show. Um, and you know, I, I hear about this guy Glenn Beck, you know, and I'm like, oh, I should go look him up. And you know, I was like, oh, conservative, you know, talk show radio host. And I was like, hey, I heard you mentioned your book on my, my book on your show. Just you know, I wanted to say thanks because the book sold a thousand copies. You helped me accomplish a lifelong goal. And, you know, one of my friends like, Trini, I don't think you realize how big this is. Like, go look at your, your sales. And I was like, oh, I sold a thousand copies in one day. But what was really interesting to see was the reaction from people in my audience and even, you know, and how people perceive this guy. It's like, you know, like I may not agree with most of what he has said or, you know, and there are things that I've seen. I'm like, wow, I can't believe that 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 he actually said or did this. And it, it's pretty awful. Um, and yet the thing is, if we can't open ourselves up to, to people we may not disagree with, we can't have civil discourse and we can't make progress as a society. Um, so it's really important that we understand that because you know what? Like I'm always, you know, I had a lot of friends who met Glenn back after they met me and they're like, wow, he's so nice. And I'm like, yeah. You know, and, and I said, like, what you have to realize is media creates a mask and it's kind of like a telephone, a game of telephone that goes wrong. Because think about what happens by the time a million people hear something, right? Like, I could say one thing in this episode that you and I are having right now, and that one thing could be twisted and contorted and, you know, mangled to the point where I come out looking like a complete asshole. And the more people that listen to it, the bigger of an asshole I seem like. Um and yet, you know, under the surface, maybe that's inaccurate. And I only know this because, you know, every like the funniest comment I've ever heard from somebody um, was with a vendor who was looking at translating our content into different languages using an AI tool. And she's like, you must be the most self-actualized human being in the world. I was like, that's ridiculous. I'm one of the most fucked up human beings in the world. That's why I do this work, because I need to solve all my problems with my guests. Um but but the thing is, it's it's amazing, right? That somebody would create that perception based on three conversations that they heard, and that to me, I think, is really the thing to keep in mind here. That's what's what makes this really what what I would say about in answer to your question. It's a really long way to answer, um, you know, your question about people who weren't perceived as well. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, I, I I think you kind of hit the nail on the head, and it's kind of very interesting to see where this show goes. Uh, but on a final note, you know, I think to be kind to your editor and not give them more to edit for this thing. Uh, you know, it's always great chatting with you, Shani, but I have to have to ask. Um, I think everyone wants to ask everyone who's listening to this. And, you know, what does a tag Shani the loser mean? I mean, it was obviously very unfair, very curt. It speaks more about them than it speaks about you. Because far from it. But in some ways, there's that song, you know, which the line which goes, I took what I hated and made it a part of me. <laughs> so you've taken this criticism and kind of um, now made it a nomenclature, right? Um, what does that tag mean for you? In all honesty, it means nothing because, you know, it's the opinion of somebody whose opinion matters like not one bit in my life. The opinion of somebody who I'm never going to see again, yeah. who I'm never going to have an interaction with. Um, the, the funny thing is, mother-in-law at one point. 
So, well, thank God that's not the case, but that's a whole other story. But so Seth Godin once said that, you know, he doesn't read book reviews because he said anonymous feedback from people who I have absolutely no relationship with will cause me to do nothing but hide. Um, and in a lot of ways, that's kind of how I view this. It's like, what does it mean? It means nothing. It meant a lot of good publicity, to be honest. Like, in all honesty, that was a, bless a huge blessing in disguise, because if that hadn't happened, there's a really good chance that I would have just been an afterthought in this whole situation because it was such a brief, it was like, it basically, what it did, it was it basically lit a fire where there wasn't one. And in all honesty, what I, so what do I say? What do I, what does it mean? It's meant actually very good things for me. And I'm actually grateful that it happened, which sounds insane. But right. I think that it really honestly, like, like I said, I would have been completely left out of the conversation here if that hadn't happened, I think, because you know, I mean, I, my appearance was brief. Um, and without that, it would not have put the spotlight on me at all. Like people wouldn't have been like, Oh, I need to go check that. Now I really want to know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's sort of, uh, you know, because you were like, not one of the main cast, you were sort of, um, you know, one of the, uh, the, uh, person that one of the main cast you set up with, uh, it's sort of now become a reference point for the show. Right. So, um, and, and yeah. I think we've got more people like it brought us to kind of gather where, I look you up, well, like you know. I was gonna get a T-shirt that said "loser" and post it on Instagram as a joke. <laughs> yeah, and you should, right? I mean, like, um, and some of the best taunts have happened uh, from there. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with English football, but the Arsenal team fans are calling themselves the Gooners because their rivals call them goons, you know. So, um, you know, you so you take what you hit it, and then you know you make it a part of you, you know. Um, and yeah. uh, no, it's interesting, and. Um, no, on that note, Shuni, this has been great, and I look forward to having more conversation with you. Of course, it'll be—I'll be remiss by saying that I'm thank you for giving me the host seat, but I'm sure when I'm yeah. back, I'd like to, you know, change and take the guest seat because, um, you know, you do what you do best on this part. So, Shuni, uh, thank you so much for the time, and uh, thank you for allowing me to the reins to your show. And I am safely returning the keys back to Unmistakable Creative. So until next time, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, this was a lot of fun. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.